two young couples traveling together through the picturesque New England area in the late 1940s come upon a sign which reads, Henniker. The driver notes that they should stop off there. He's unsure but vaguely recalls that Henniker may feature a famously haunted house that he had once read about. Well, I'm sure there's more than one town called Henniker, Ed, laughs his friend from the passenger seat just before they turn a corner and come upon the next sign. The only Henniker in the world. This was too good for them to ignore, and they turned off into town to search for this house. Since none of them knew much about it, they stopped off at the local college to ask around. It wasn't long before they were pointed in the right direction to the ocean-born Mary House in Henniker, New Hampshire. Fed by their growing interest in the paranormal, one of the couples makes their way up the walk to knock on the door. They inquire about the home's haunted history. The owner happily welcomes them in. He begins to tell the tale, the legend of Ocean-Born Mary, her exciting life and allegedly active afterlife. They are told of how she's buried on the property and now haunts the home, and how she can be seen in her ghostly form by many of the home's visitors. Ed, listening intently, is suddenly distracted by his wife, standing across from him, frozen. She's unmoving and looks to be in some sort of a trance. Ed snaps his fingers and waves his hand in front of her face. He begins to panic. Then the owner of the home says, Oh, she must be clairvoyant. This type of thing happens here to clairvoyance. This incident in the ocean-born Mary house laid the foundation for what was to become the most renowned couple in the field of paranormal studies. However, this account in a charming home in New Hampshire is a far cry from what the couple would eventually take on. Working together as a clairvoyant and a demonologist, Ed and Lorraine would go toe-to-toe -to -toe with many disturbing cases, and some would argue, evil itself. On November 13, 1974, at 3.15 a.m., Ronald DeFeo Jr. took a 35 caliber rifle and systematically walked from room to room, floor to floor, murdering his entire family, one by one as they lay in their beds. He coldly and menacingly took the lives of his parents and four siblings, ranging in age from nine to 18. Ronnie claimed someone had come into the home and opened fire on the family. In his first written statement to police, he even alludes to a man a friend of the family with ties to the mob. But later, Ronnie tells police a darker story. He claimed that he was forced into carrying out these acts by a demonic entity. He told them the dark, shadowy figure even supplied him with the rifle and walked with him from room to room as he took each shot. December, 1975. 112 Ocean Avenue, Amityville, New York. A newlywed couple looking for a fresh start meets with a realtor. She shows them a charming home and immediately Kathy Lutz is in love. The home was built in 1928 and boasted carved moldings, multiple bedrooms, a basement, 
and was nestled into a serene community in Amityville. The price seemed too good to be true, especially considering the house came fully furnished. It seemed like the perfect place to start their new life and blend their family. It wasn't until after they were ready to sign the documents that the realtor disclosed the home's horrific past. 112 Ocean Avenue was home to a gruesome mass murder, the slaying of the DeFeo family just one year earlier. This is Fright Life, a paranormal podcast, and we will be discussing Ed and Lorraine Warren in the Amityville Horror Case. Fright Life. We're your hosts, Joss and Monique Rose. Hello. And on this episode, we are discussing the Amityville horror. Uh, We're talking about the haunting that came afterwards, and we're talking about the investigation um, conducted by Ed and Lorraine Warren that followed the events of the haunting. Yes, and this case has several aspects, and I did begin in my introduction narrative kind of back in time a little bit before these things ever took place, and that is when um, Lorraine Warren experienced her first clairvoyant trance state Right. um, in the Oceanborn Mary house, and I just sort of added that for some context of when this paranormal powerhouse couple Mm -hmm. kind of came to be and kind of set the stage for what was to come in their career. For those of you who may not know, Ed and Lorraine Warren really did pioneer the field of paranormal investigation. They were linked more directly to the Catholic Church, Um, and Ed was a demonologist, Mm -hmm. and he used his religious background um, in his practice. But they are a famous couple who you may know from the Conjuring movies. Mm -hmm. Right. They're kind of the... The couple that comes in to save the day in those movies, uh, The Conjuring, the Annabelle stories, and uh, isn't there a third series that they appear into? I can't remember off the top of my head, but... Well, it's all like The Conjuring universe kind of has its own thing now, and mm-hmm. actually um, Amityville Horror Movie doesn't mention them at all, right. and it's not in the same movie franchise. But they did investigate that, and they investigated dozens of other cases, um, hundreds really, but many that you know and are familiar with from that Conjuring franchise. It's really crazy, too, because they, as we found out, they never really asked for money or um, any sort of compensation to come. They would just hear about these families that are in desperate need of answers or some kind of help because they're having some trouble with hauntings in their homes yes and they did start off just kind of seeking out these these legends and and these homes that maybe had kind of you know ghost tours and things at Mm -hmm. them and they would go and um actually have their own little gimmick their little inn where ed was a 
a painter mm-hmm. and he would paint these houses and then they would go door to door to these haunted homes and that would be their conversation starter. Like, hey, we heard your house was haunted. Here's a painting of it. Could you tell us a little more about the paranormal happenings here? Right. He would uh, actually paint the houses as haunted houses. Right, He'd right. like paint ghosts and stuff mm-hmm. flying into them and be like, hey, I, I painted your house as a haunted house. How haunted is it? Right. You know? Ed sort of ended up having his own, I don't want to say agenda, but maybe mission or as he felt it was his duty mm-hmm. to make people aware that evil was real and demons were real yeah that seemed to be his his kind of end game there Mm -hmm. was to i mean above all else to really find evidence and prove that demons exist right which he was always surprised at how difficult it was to convince people Mm -hmm. um being such a christian country right you should believe in demons if you believe in god so especially the Catholic Church, and that was something that he really worked to prove during his career. Mm-hmm. But also, yes, helping people, yeah. like taking it on kind of one story at a time to do what they could for these families, these places. Uh, and that is where the Amityville house comes in to play. And yeah. it was not their first case, but it is their most memorable. And Lorraine was quoted several times as saying it was the one place she would never return. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty significant, considering all the things that they've seen, all the cases they've dealt with, all the hauntings. I mean, that really must have left a mark. For sure. And we'll get into this more later, but she never can clearly explain why. But she just said that she would never return to this house, and she does not like thinking back on this horrible case. And it all began with the DeFeo murders. Mm Mm-hmm where in 1974, Ronnie DeFeo Jr. shoots and kills his entire family as they are asleep in their beds. So earlier in Ronnie's day on November 13th, he had done some day drinking at a local bar. He hopped around from friend to friend's house and he admittedly shot some heroin. Why is that funny? I don't know, that's just funny. Like, yeah, and I also had some heroin that day. Like, that just seems like an interesting thing to just pepper in there. Well, that actually is interesting because the police did note that he was giving up all of these kind of seemingly minor infractions in comparison to murder in his testimony, or in his statement to police. So that was actually part of his testimony, like, to the police. Yeah, he admitted to them that that's what his day consisted of, which struck them as a bit odd. He was, like, giving up these little insignificant in comparison to murder Mm -hmm. pieces of information. Um, throughout. So that's interesting that you pointed that out. So after the shooting, uh, which he carried out himself, it turns out, he showered, changed his clothes, hid the murder weapon in a sewer drain, and went back to the bar he had been drinking, where he had been drinking earlier, and alerted friends that his family had been killed. So his friends came back to the house with him and checked around and saw the bodies of his family. And one of his friends or acquaintances from the community called 911 from the family's phone inside the house. So he he shows up at the bar and he's like, oh my God, somebody totally killed my family. Yeah. Come and check it out. Mm-hmm. As like in his mind, he's... He just discovered them that way. So this is weird to me because somebody who's like a drug addict, like mentally unstable person 
who's just going to go and rampage his family. This seems all very methodically po- like planned out to me. Yes, I agree. I have a theory on... Well, I mean, I just have like a point to make on that later. Okay, we'll come back. We'll circle back to that then, mm-hmm. for put sure. A, put a pin in that idea. Yeah. But definitely, that's how it seems. Um, so his those people return to the house. They make the 911 call from the house. And they discover the bodies. I'm assuming they probably are like, what are you talking about? And have to kind of see it for themselves. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, if, if I hear someone saying that, I will just call the police right. straight from where I am. But also, this is before, you know, cell phones. and Sure. Um, I mean, there are pay phones at this time, but they just ended up back at the house. And the transcription of the 911 call and the person who makes it, it all seems very frazzled. And he is very obviously traumatized by seeing this scene. When you mentioned Ronnie being a drug addict... I do want to note that the general consensus in the community and kind of what I got from my research was that he was high-functioning if an addict. He admits to police he does drugs from time to time but wouldn't consider himself an addict. Now, I'm sure there are many addicts who would say that same thing um, about themselves, Mm -hmm. but he held a job. He did work for his father, but he held a job. He just seemed more like a, a mild screw up right. then you know really down that that hole just yet but he still kind of you know he had friends and relationships that he kept going and, yeah and the police believed him enough when he in- initially prompted that mob story yeah that they did call their organized crime unit to come out to the scene originally Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So he did sort of allude to that being what he thought. And he did it in a very, like you were saying, methodical, but yeah, a very well-designed way. If you read the police report and his written statement, Mm -hmm. he doesn't blame someone outright. He does gently pepper in this small fight that he had had with his dad's friend or colleague who has ties to the mob. And he sort of just says it as if it was part of their last few weeks. You know, he was just kind of like listing out the general happenings in the family. Right. That may be of interest, but he's not like a raving lunatic about some mafia kill. Yeah. So it it was just enough to where police would be like, oh, that does sound interesting. Let's get someone on that. Wow. So I think he definitely was playing dumb and he was trying to play them really well. But it didn't take them long to discover that he was the shooter. And then Ronnie changed his story from the mafia story to the demon story. Right. Where he had been hearing voices and the house was getting him to do this. And that the entity even supplied him with the rifle. And that he stood in the basement, handed him the rifle and told him to do this and then walked around with him as he carried this out. When police entered the scene that night, there was a notably foul odor Mm -hmm. coming from the home and swarms and swarms of flies, which doesn't seem too strange except that they arrived an hour or so after the murders took place. Right. So it's not as if it was some... Yeah, it takes flies a little while to... Right. Not too long, but about 24 hours, I think, Mm -hmm. for the whole fly and maggot infestation. Right. Unless all the doors were open or something, and it was like... But it was it was also winter. Weird. Oh, okay. Right, November. Mm-hmm. Hmm. On the East Coast. That's super weird. Right. So the police come onto the scene. They do their investigation. Ronnie is arrested, charged, and tried. And the community, the small community of Amityville, mourns the death of this family. Mm-hmm. 
and the tragedy that took place, and not long at all after the Lutz family come onto the scene and they purchase the home. And that is December 1975, so 13 months after the murders. And they purchased the house fully furnished. So all of the like, furniture, right, from the DeFeo family is still in the house. Yeah, it's all the DeFeo's furniture, even the bed frames. But do they do they know? Like coming in, does the realtor? I'm just thinking back to our um, legally haunted <laughs> case. Yeah. Like real quick, like the realtor does tell them, and they decide that they love the house and the deal is great, and they aren't superstitious, so they don't have any fear of moving in. However, in mentioning it to a friend initially, um, before the move-in, this friend tells them it will be really important that they get the house blessed. Sure. So, George isn't really sure what this means, because he is not Catholic. Um, but, I mean, you get the general idea just hearing that. You don't have to be Catholic to really know. Kind of the... I mean, at that point, it's just a friendly suggestion. You know, their friend is like, well, you know, just to be safe, there's probably some weird energies there. Right, but George isn't really sure how to go about that because he has no link to the Catholic Church. Um, and that is specifically what his friend was recommending. Got it. So he does reach out to a family friend, Father Ray, or Ralph Pecoraro, to come out and bless the house. He is a Catholic priest, and he shows up on moving day which was December 18th, 1975. And he arrives when the Lutz family was actually taking boxes out of the car, so they hadn't even gone in to move in yet. Oh, wow. Good um, timing. Yeah, so Father Ray enters and starts blessing the house, and he goes from room to room with his holy water, and he's performing, you know, the rites. And it isn't until he reaches the sewing room mm -hmm. that he starts to feel uneasy. And he is saying the prayers and sprinkling the holy water and he hears a guttural voice say get out and flies begin swarming around him well for some reason he decides not to alert the family about this and he inquires about the usage of the room which they tell him it's the sewing room uh, and he says okay well, as long as no one sleeps in there you'll be fine okay bye yeah and then he just kind of skedaddles <laughs> what no context there uh -uh. at all I guess they just are... Just don't sleep okay. in there. Okay, well, we'll see you later. Yeah. And I guess they just continue to bring the boxes inside. Well, that was weird. All right, take this to the kitchen. Right. And things escalate quickly after that. The Lutz family is only in this home for 28 days. Total. Mm -hmm. Though it didn't strike him as odd on the first few nights, George woke up at 3.15 a.m. on night one and every night after that. And in case you weren't taking notes specifically, that's exactly the time that the murders occurred, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Starting on night one, Kathy has horrific nightmares, and those escalate nightly into detailed first-person accounts of the murders taking place, including vivid detail of where bullets entered and exit exited the bodies. And she's dreaming from the perspective of Ronnie DeFeo. Mm -hmm. Tensions seem to rise in the home more and more each day. Everyone is sort of short with one another. This could be due to being a new blended family in a new place. The kids are going to a new school. George and Kathy are learning to live together and raise these children together. Mm -hmm. 
George is losing sleep, he's waking up at 3.15, Kathy's having nightmares every night. All of these things could fall into the realm of normal rather than paranormal. Right. But he does note that, you know, even before some of the crazier stuff starts happening, that he does feel compelled to, like, get up and check the house. Like, starting on, like, night two. Yeah, he's very uneasy at all times. Yeah. Agitated. Which could also be that he's in a new place. Mm Mm-hmm protecting a new family sure he hasn't been responsible for a family before you know even the waking up at 315 and the nightmares could be subjective behaviors based on what they're hearing Mm -hmm. from the community so i don't know how detailed that's getting or if they researched the murders after they heard what had taken place in the home you know you kind of have to ask about that that doesn't necessarily mean i think that they're lying or making these things up but the power of suggestion is strong sure but there's more yeah yeah that's it gets gets real juicy yeah so uh george realizes at some point that the house just doesn't seem to warm up and he experiences a growing obsession with the fireplace and trying to warm the house yeah he talks about actually to the point where they're he's breaking down the boxes that they use to pack their things in and burning the boxes specifically just to keep the fire going at all time Mm-hmm. It's like large quantities of cardboard in yeah. his fireplace. He's like almost obsessing over the fire. Um, and he says that he can't get warm unless he's like right next to the fire. Mm. But you don't actually hear much from the other family members complaining of the house being cold. So it seems like it's just affecting George, mm-hmm. which is kind of strange. Yeah. And then on their fifth day in the home, Kathy's making lunch mm-hmm. and she hears the kids upset about something yelling for her and she runs up to find that they are horrified that they've come across this black sludge ooze coming out of the toilets and the faucets Mm -hmm. and it doesn't seem to wash off like leaves the oh it's like leaving Mm -hmm. residue yeah so that's weird um and then on that same day they're met with more swarms and swarms of flies and this is now mid-december so it's just strange yeah that's really unusual And then their eighth day in the home is Christmas, uh, and that is a relatively uneventful day. They get through their Christmas routine kind of happily, and they all go to bed fulfilled and relaxed, and George wakes up at 3.15 a.m. unsettled and notices that the door to the boathouse on the property is open. So he goes outside to secure the door, and he turns to walk back toward the house, and he sees an inhuman figure standing in the little girl Missy's bedroom window. So he yells and rushes up to her, and when he gets into her room, nothing is out of place, and she's fast asleep. We've talked about that story before recording so many times, and every time we talk about it, it gives me chills. Mm -hmm. Like, the fact that, I mean, first of all, he's basically a new dad. Like, all of the children are... Kathy's kids Mm -hmm. from her previous marriage and so he's just trying to kind of come to terms with the new dad thing first of all which has got to be a whole mental deal on its own but then to see this creature in his new stepdaughter's window like lurking around in there I don't know that gives me such an uneasy feeling just Mm -hmm. like thinking about that story freaks me out so much yeah so what's interesting is the next day Mm -hmm. Missy, whose bedroom that is, starts talking about her friend, Jody. And her mom comes up and overhears her talking to someone in her bedroom, and she peeks in to just be like, hey, honey, who are you talking to? Mm-hmm. And 
There's no one else in there with her, but the rocking chair in her room is rocking as she's talking to the rocking chair, the empty rocking chair. And she asks her mom if angels can talk. So they begin asking Missy questions like, who, what do you mean? And mm-hmm. who, who are you talking to? She tells them Jody looks like a pig a little bit and that sometimes she can be as small as a teddy bear or bigger than the house, depending on what she wants to be. Hold on. So, so she doesn't say Jody is a pig. No. She says that she sort of looks like a pig. Mm-hmm. No, thank you. Yeah, no, no, none of it. That's even that's, if she was a just a legit just a pig. Well, I mean, an invisible pig. Having a, a kid having an imaginary friend that's like a pig, oh, you know, okay. like a cute little right. pig. Like I no. can understand that. That's fine. No, this is a shape shifting pig. Yeah. Who. Has but, apparently alluded to the fact that she claims she's an angel. Why would she ask if angels can talk? Right. Yeah, so not... And this is the night, the day after mm-hmm. he sees some crazy figure lurking in her room at 3 o'clock in the morning. As if he was lured out to the boathouse. Like Just he leaves so. the house so that something can take place in yeah. the house. I mean, I don't know why that would have to take, happen, but it just seems weird that he was like taken from the house yeah. and sees this. And then that thing is in, like let in, mm-hmm. you know, suddenly there's, there's a presence there that the child is talking to, communicating with. So that's major. That's a huge difference from just the temperature shifts and the nightmares. Yeah. Now there's a, there's something in the there's house an now for sure. That someone has seen and talked to. Yeah. So they're terrified and they call Father Ray mm-hmm. again to come out and bless the house again. Like it didn't work please come back. We need this more than ever. Here's the thing happening with Missy. And he, um, Father Ray refuses to return to the house. And they are stunned. Like, what do you mean you won't do it? And he just will not. And it turns out that after his experience there, that he downplayed to the family the first time for some reason, he had had really dark experiences of his own and some of them even manifested into blisters on his hands which he needed to get medical attention for so he was like no i'm not returning well yeah and on top of that the doctor even was like i can't explain what would have caused this right so he's got mystery sores on his hands Mm -hmm. after like throwing the holy water yeah it just seems too dark and he was not having it not not coming back Mm-mm. but then the Lutz family feels alone and defeated mm-hmm. at that point on the 10th day in the house George is ripped out of a peaceful sleep at 3.15 by an alarming sound which he later describes as a marching band tuning up um, and it's so loud that he has to cover his ears and he kind of stumbles around the house trying to find this sound and he realizes he's the only one awake so no one else is being startled awake and he stumbles down to the landing on the stairs to find his dog also just fast asleep on the landing. So, so the, the strange thing about George's experiences to me is it always seems like it's taking him away from yeah, it's trying Kathy. To, yes, it's trying to drive him out. He's the only one who can hear the sound. It's an unbearable sound that he needs to escape from. But the sound stops as suddenly as it started and he goes back into the bedroom and i don't know goes to sleep what do you do after something like that happens yeah like how do they just reset every day and i know they only lasted 28 days but how did they do any of them how do you just live normally 
one day after something like this happens. So next, Kathy is cleaning the house when she discovers a previously hidden room in the basement behind a bookshelf and it's like a closet sized space painted bright vibrant red and it smells horrible. To make things worse, the family dog acts strangely around this room once it's discovered and will not go near it. That's why you gotta have a dog. Because mm -hmm. they will straight up tell you if something's haunted. They <laughs> won't go in there. Yeah, for sure. So it's a, it's an empty room? Mm-hmm. Nothing to in there. Totally empty. Smells horrible. Painted red. Hidden behind a full standing bookcase. That's super weird. Mm-hmm. That... Nothing good comes from mysterious hidden rooms. No. You're right. That is facts right there. So that same day that they discover this room, they discover this green gelatin substance throughout the house, which seems really odd. It's another substance. They've got black oozing. Oh, and then that black oozing stuff starts coming out of the keyholes of the doors. So what is with all these weird substances? So one thing that I will just throw out there, because I... The, the green ooze stuff, uh, they describe it as being kind of like green jello mm -hmm. and they find it all over the floors and stuff in little like clumps and they wipe it up and then it's gone. So it's not like it's something that reoccurs right away. The only thing that's weird about that to me is we've done a ton of research on hauntings and like what, what to expect when you're expecting a haunting. <laughs> um, I, I don't think I've ever heard of like green goo like actually like outside of like the movies or something yeah, like or ghostbusters yeah like you have oh green slime right. oh there must be a ghost but in like actual real cases of hauntings mm -hmm. i don't think i've ever heard of that one before which isn't to say one way or the other that's just an interesting thing no so it does seem very odd mm -hmm. for sure but it's definitely alarming to them yeah um understandably and they decide to talk to some friends about it. So on day 18, they leave the house. They go to visit some friends. Mm -hmm. They tell them what they've been going through. And their friends just don't really believe it. Full story, bro. Yeah. And it's not like they think they're lying necessarily, but they're just skeptical mm -hmm. of the thing. You know, there's nothing that stands out to them as like, oh, they were acting shifty and we didn't believe a word right. they said. They just, they said, well, if I had seen it, then I would believe it. Yeah. But well, I mean, that's an, an understandable response to that for sure. But also, I mean, nowadays we have the travel channel and the history channel mm -hmm. and we have just hours and hours and hours of Discovery. paranormal. Yeah. Discovery plus. Um, you know, it's not weird to believe in paranormal stuff now. It's if, not. Actually, in, in starting this podcast, so many people are coming to us with, with their stories and their, like, acceptance. You know, I've had two people out of dozens and dozens who have been like, you're doing what? Yeah. And one of those is my dad, so it doesn't <laughs> count. Thanks, He dad. says that no matter, no matter what. I feel like, but back then, you know, in the, like, 70s, it was, sure, that it was around, for sure, but I don't, I feel like it wasn't exactly as, like, mainstream, so... Yeah, but even then, if you have friends coming to you saying together, mm -hmm. two people collectively, telling you these situations, why wouldn't you believe them? Because even if you don't believe in ghosts, something is going on for both people to be making these claims. Yeah. It's not just one friend who might be going off off the deep end a little bit. Like, maybe you need some sleep and a yoga retreat. Yeah. This is two people telling you what they're going through at the same time. 
That does seem kind of like a dick move to just brush them off. Well, and what would their motive be at that point? Right. It's not like they're bored. Yeah. They just got married. They just, you know, moved into this beautiful home in this gorgeous community. Yeah. Why would they need to invent this? Yeah. So, yeah, their friends are a little bit rude, and they feel more isolated than ever. And they decide the next day to take matters into their own hands and perform their own blessing of this house. And they are not practicing any religion. Right. And they use a Bible and a crucifix to go around and do a Catholic house blessing. That's just... Might not be the best idea. That's no good. I feel like the reason that the Catholic blessing coming from a priest works is because of that person's conviction and belief in the words. Yes. That's what gives them power. So, I mean, he could be saying, twinkle, twinkle, little star, but he, if he's saying it with all of the like energy and the conviction that mm-hmm. comes from you know the the power that he gets from his religion that's why this works as a you know a blessing or an exorcism or whatever he's doing to the house mm-hmm. but he's devoted his whole life to believing that this works mm-hmm. well and it reminds me of my favorite one of my favorite quotes from practical magic when her spell goes awry mm-hmm. and her aunt tells her you can't practice magic and look down your nose at it yeah. at the same time. So if they're not Catholic and they're performing Catholic rituals against, you know, a demonic presence right. who's the antithesis of, you know, the Catholic Holy Trinity, mm-hmm. that's probably going to be not a great move. Yeah. But what's interesting, like, is it not a great move or is it just not good enough? Because they hear a voice, both of them together, as they're in the sewing room of the house doing the blessing. Okay. And they hear a voice uh, say, just stop. I think almost in a way that's just unimpressed. Yeah, just like give it up. Mm-hmm. Wow. But the amateur blessing does seem to make the activity worse because the next night, George wakes at 3.15 a.m. and he hears his stepson's bed slamming around on the floor above him because he's up on the third floor, the, okay, the boy's right. bedroom. And it's as if it's lifting and slamming down, like the full force of the bed. And George also realizes he can't go help because he is paralyzed. So he wakes up, some sort of it's sleep paralysis, or he's being held down, or he's paralyzed with fear, but he cannot move. And he looks over at Kathy, or tries to, but she, she's not beside him. She's actually levitating off of the bed and moving slowly away from him. Like something has lifted her out of bed and is pulling her away walking away with her Oof. nope yeah and then he can feel something climb into bed like pressure on the mattress and he's like in her place yeah i don't know or like near him and he sees shadows moving around in the hallway outside the door mm-hmm. and i don't know what snaps him out of it but he can finally move he grabs kathy out from midair i guess and looks at her horrified because her face is transformed into like a wrinkly old hag with white hair and she sees it behind him in her reflection in the mirror and is also terrified apparently and it's just this big whirlwind of paranormal activity right. happening at this point so the kids beds are floating around yeah kathy's levitating and the kids um there is a documentary and the interviewer talks to the kids now as adults and mm-hmm. they recall or one of them danny mm-hmm. lutz recalls his bed like going up towards the ceiling and slamming down like crazy 
that. The next morning, they call Father Ray. He tells them to get out of the house, which is a concept they had not thought of until he mentions it. That's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. And then they take literally all day to pack minimal belongings. Right, yeah, I was reading about that specifically. Their goal was to pack one suitcase each and go to Kathy's mother's house. And they can't seem to stay on task. It's, it's as if they are like forgetting what they're doing and they they have to keep going back to the kids and like reminding them like come on pack your stuff you know we're gonna go it takes them all day literally all day to pack one suitcase each and get in the van that is crazy i mean that happens to us when we're like gonna go to the beach for the day yeah. and they're like oh we wanted to leave at 7 a.m right now it's noon but we're not escaping something horrible yeah like, if you'd have a little fire under you if you're trying to escape something that's traumatizing right yeah you grab a couple things and just go yeah so that's really weird so they vacate the house after 28 days of living there and they never go back but they do first try to contact some parapsychologists and paranormal researchers to see if they can fix anything and actually a woman named laura didio mm -hmm. who is an investigative journalist who had worked with ed and lorraine warren previously she got wind of this story and contacted George Lutz and set George Lutz up and kind of was the go-between mm -hmm. um, with the Lutz family and the Warren family. Um, and she asked if they could, you know, come investigate the house. And she had a Channel 5 news team with her and they were going to do a full investigation. So George had already reached out previously to parapsychologists. Jerry Sulfan. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wanted to do some initial groundwork to validate the claims before he made the trip out. He was going to send out like a field researcher. Right. And George didn't like that idea just because he had this level of urgency to what he wanted to be done. Yeah, it seemed like Sullivan was taking too long to kind of get his stuff together to get out there. And well, and if you think about it, George had already gone through like telling a Catholic priest, telling his closest friends and... Nobody seemed to have that sense of urgency to, like, solve right. this. And so... Well, and this guy also was sort of trying to explain it away a little bit. Like, it was another thing... No, I don't know. So that... He should do that. That's what we do. Right. He wanted to validate the claims and debunk anything he could debunk. But George was sort of over it because that's what everyone else had already said to him. Right. That's kind of... That's what I was saying. It's but like, it's a it, fresh set of eyes. It was a, taking too long to to get results for George. So right. he was like, just forget it. I'll go somewhere else. But right. this guy was trying to be more scientific and he was yes. like, well, you know, it could be explained this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. But George had already been like, it's not explained. Right. This happened. Right. So I'll talk to somebody else. Yeah. So on February 24th, 1976, Laura DiDio, Ed and Lorraine Warren, and George Lutz meet outside of the Amityville house, 112 Ocean Avenue. George refuses to go in with them and hands over the house keys to these essential strangers. Yeah, he was there a little bit early, mm -hmm. and he was like, I'm already feeling whacked out by this house, so yeah. I'm going to just go. He Here's left. the keys. Mm -hmm. Have a ball. Uh, and so they go in and survey the home. Uh, Laura notes that it does very much look like a house that was left just in midday living conditions, like dishes in the sink. There was a gingerbread house on the counter, and all of their belongings were left behind. Mm -hmm. And she had previously interviewed the Lutzes for, uh, for several hours. And remember, she's an investigative journalist. Right. 
um, and she found them to be credible witnesses to yeah. these hauntings. Yeah, she's not um, like a hack or anything. Like she's a well-known reporter mm -hmm. from the area, so she's not just gonna be like, "Oh yeah, totally, this house is haunted. I'm gonna go check it out based on nothing." Right. You know, she listened to them, and so she even mentioned that they would be like the Meryl Streep and Robert De Niro of you know paranormal story actors if they were making it up. Like she was so taken by their story. Right. So they go in, Lorraine feels ill. And that's sort of what they do is um, when Ed and Lorraine go to investigate a place, they get their kind of baseline readings and they'll go mm -hmm. in without much knowledge of yeah. the home. And Ed will sort of follow Lorraine around. Like she's sort of the natural like EMF detector yeah. and all of that in one. And he'll say, you know, what are you feeling? And she was feeling very ill and run down from the moment they went inside. Most notably on the third floor, she said mm -hmm. when she tried to climb the stairs um, to go to, the, to that third floor, it was like walking up like, through a heavy waterfall. Yeah. And she just couldn't muster the strength to do it. A heavy suppression. Mm -hmm. They even split up at one point because Lorraine talks about going to the upper floors and Ed goes to the basement. Mm -hmm. And he feels the same pressure in the basement as yeah. she feels upstairs right and they didn't know that going in mm -hmm. like they came back and talked about it later and they're like yeah no i felt this this is what i felt and it was um it kind of clicked with them like oh yeah this is this place there's something going on here right and lorraine did pick up that it was dark and demonic and so did ed mm -hmm. and lorraine noted that it wasn't the ghosts or the spirits of the defeo family that's interesting she didn't pick up on them being responsible for the the hauntings right specifically the events that were being you know recorded mm -hmm. by kathy and george right so they decide that they want to conduct a seance and while they're doing all of this george had been trying to coordinate his own thing and that's when he reached out you know to to jerry Sulfin and some other psychics mary pascarella alberta riley he'd been sort of trying to get his own thing going so by the time they cleared, Ed and Lorraine and Laura DiDio cleared a seance with the Lutz family. They got permission to do this mm -hmm. um, because they would be bringing out the Channel 5 news team, basically. Right. He had had, George had had his, his own team put together. So the seance took place on March 6th, 1975, and it was about 20 people. <laughs> so it had... It was a party. Yeah, it was about 20 people... Jerry Sulfin, a parapsychologist, Ed and Lorraine, Laura DiDio, and her Channel 5 news team. Marvin Scott was an anchor with that news team, mm -hmm. and he was a skeptic. And then there was Mary Pascarella, who's a psychic, and Alberta Riley, who's also a psychic. Okay. Um, so they start the seance at midnight in the dining room, and one of the psychics, Mary, picks up on a dark hooded figure who comes at you and kind of takes over. She felt very overwhelmed, especially in Missy's bedroom. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Where she heard voices, she saw shadow figures in the hallway. She, oh, she tried saying the Lord's Prayer and was hearing it being mocked back at her in reverse. Right. So she's the one that during the seance, she was feeling overwhelmed. And so she was like, okay, I'm going to take a break. Mm -hmm. And she went up to the one of the kids' bedrooms to like... To just sit down. Take, take a rest yeah. for a second. And that's when she saw the shadow figures and she was like, hey, 
get out of here, mm-hmm. trying to do the Lord's Prayer to like banish them. And mm-hmm. they're saying it back to her in reverse. Yeah. And she was like, this is messed up. And she throws holy water at them. And then she even throws a cross at him uh, or like through them. And she says... She mentioned that the holy water sounds like if you put water on like a hot pan. Yeah. And it does that sizzling sound. Like a sizzling sound. sound. She couldn't see anything there when she was throwing it, but that's the sound that was happening when she would throw the holy water. That's an interesting detail. Mm-hmm. And Alberta Riley, the psychic at the table during the seance, her, I don't know if she normally communicated this way, but in the video of the seance, mm-hmm. she was very nervous and anxious sounding and upset and had her eyes closed and kind of was was reporting what she was seeing and was almost a little whiny. I don't know if she just normally, you know, tells her story that way, right. but it did seem very oppressive and dark and heavy. Yeah, out of context from her, like, other seances or readings that she's done it's hard to say for sure um how she normally acts but it really does seem like she's being affected by something in that footage and she almost seems really young yeah and like a victim right of something dark so that i thought was really strange like she's talking about something coming at her yeah and she's kind of whimpering which is weird like what if she's in one of the kids like point of view wow i don't know That adds some layers of terror to that. Yeah, Um, but the seance... So, during the seance, Lorraine led Marvin Scott, Marvin Scott, the news anchor, Mm -hmm. up to the sewing room at 3.15 a.m. She's like, come with me. And he remembers being kind of scared, but skeptical. Mm -hmm. And they go up there, and neither of them can really say why or what happens. And Lorraine doesn't actually have memory of what happens there, specifically but says that it was the closest to hell that she ever hopes to get. Yikes. So, like, what is that about? It's also interesting that neither of them Mm -hmm. have recollection of what... Of why it was horrible. Yeah. They kept saying it's horrible, but didn't say why or what happened. Yeah. And then at sunrise, the seance ends. Mm -hmm. Ed and Lorraine decide that the house is infested with demons, and it can't really be helped. And the Lutz family, who had continued to pay for the house realized, you know, okay, I guess it just can't be saved. And they let the bank, like the house foreclose and yeah. the bank take over. And they left behind most of their belongings, including their car. Yeah, they go to the airport because they're just going to like leave the state mm-hmm. and move away with whatever few belongings they have. They get to the airport and they hand the keys and the title to the valet. And they're just like, here you go. Yeah, they just gave them their car. One-way ticket to wherever we're going. San Diego, California. That was it. Yeah. A while after that, Hans Holzer, who's also a famed paranormal mm-hmm. investigator, arrives on the scene to do his own investigation of the house. Um, and he is attempting to write a book about it with a spotlight on the murders of the DeFeo family. And he also calls upon Laura DiDio the investigative journalist Mm -hmm. and he employs her to be part of his research team and she remembers meeting him there to work the camera and the camera freezing up completely and not working which was weird um and he also had called upon a his own trance medium to get her reading of the house Mm -hmm. and while lorraine is a light trance medium Mm -hmm. this woman um, Mrs. Johnson is a full trance medium, which means they can take on kind of characteristics of their spirit guides when they're giving information. Okay. 
And Laura DiDio recalls that this, you know, 70-something psychic woman Mm -hmm. goes into a trance and starts speaking like a man and she sees this Adam's apple like appear in her throat oh. as she's as she's her spirit guide. Isn't that so That's odd? That's really crazy. Um, but they come across some like what what Hans Holzer and this um, Mrs. Johnson pick up is that the house is built on an ancient burial ground. Mm. That old chestnut. At the time though, that maybe that wasn't a, the old chestnut. Yeah. You know? That could have just been like And there was something about a 1905 rainstorm which washed an unknown skeletal remains out from under the house. Oh, okay. Um, But I did not research much about that in in Hans Holzer's research into this case. Maybe we'll cover that on a a different thing. Yeah. Um, So that's just interesting that a kind of competing paranormal researcher went in after them, this whole team, but also picked up on something and had evidence from from the house that he thought meant it was haunted so speaking of evidence there isn't a ton of uh like physical evidence like a lot of it is kind of like you know this is just what we experienced while we were here type of stuff um and i mean a lot of that is they didn't have all the cool gadgets that we have now which by the way we have some cool gadgets coming really soon and really really stoked about it um but one thing that they did capture during the night of the seance and we'll post this on our instagram page a little bit later on they had walked through the house um taking some photographs and the way that they were investigating the house is they were kind of doing it in teams and so everybody was accounted for at the time and they take a picture of the sort of landing on the second floor so you can see the stairs uh, going up to the third floor uh, and on the other side of the banister to those steps you can actually see the face of a young boy like peering over the banister and his eyes are like glowing white there's a black it, and white photo because it's it's a night vision photo it's not it, it is the worst thing i've ever seen because it's also it's a perfect picture of this kid yeah and there weren't any children at the seance that no, night. so what's interesting about this is it's not being debunked as like a faked photo mm-hmm. or a photoshopped anything right it's not being debunked as matrixing it is a full it's not like a shadowy figure of maybe that could be the shape of this looking like a human it is a full picture of a kid the eyes are glowing maybe because it's the night vision mm-hmm. so it's reflecting off of retinas even right but it still adds to the it's creepy mega creepiness factor how uh, you don't even need that aspect so the debunking people are saying it was one of the investigators Mm -hmm. but this is clearly a boy child yeah more compelling is it looks exactly like one of the defeo boys yeah there's actually even a a picture that somebody put together of like a side-by-side photograph of the defeo boys Mm -hmm. and this entity on the stairs sitting there it's like emotional to look at because not only is it terrifying, but it is sad mm-hmm. because, you know, these little boys were murdered by yeah. their big brother. I mean, you can almost see the expression on his face. He just looks like he's like a frightened little kid. I fully have chills and like pins and needles through my whole body just even talking about it. I'm not yeah. even looking at the picture right now. So we will put it up. You guys let us know what you think. Mm-hmm. And then something much less compelling but i thought was a little bit interesting and i kind of stumbled upon it on my own and made this connection we talked about the 
gelatinous substance being kind of weird and suspect Mm -hmm. and the black sludge coming out of the faucets and the toilets and the keyholes Mm -hmm. being almost too haunty yeah like too like they hollywood horror movie tried to figure out what would look scary Right. right and i don't know if that's one of the things that was embellished for the film or not but i don't think so um i think it's in their original account But what's interesting is when I was pouring over, kind of combing through, I'll say, the police report Mm -hmm. of the DeFeo murders, they have the list of what they took from the home. Right. Regular things after a murder, like shell casings, um, you know, metal fragments, Mm -hmm. fibers, hair samples. And one thing stood out to me after we had already discussed the, the strange materials and substances, and it was on this list, it said clay-like substance from ceiling of basement hmm. like on the official police report that's really weird I thought clay-like so. substance just with all the other substances yeah you know found i thought that was interesting and why would they take that right because another really weird thing about that is that none of the murders happened in the basement right so and so. it was obviously significant enough and noticeable enough for them to think that it could be of use to the right. case. Yeah, that's really weird. So from there, the Lutz family never goes back. Right. They The house is foreclosed on, mm-hmm. sold to the bank. And George Lutz, who was having dark thoughts and knew enough to get out, mm-hmm. went on to actually get his own, not a full exorcism, but a rite of separation ritual. Okay. Um, and felt good after that. Like he felt like it was successful. Right. Um, something that we kind of skipped over that I think, um, because they received a lot of backlash. Yeah. So you'll look into this case and it's either the Amityville horror or the Amityville hoax. And yeah. This was like how they separated, you know, what team you were on. Like, were you, you know, team Jacob or team Edward? <laughs> and a lot of people were saying it was a hoax. A lot of, you know, large news stories, like front page news and mm-hmm. of the area would say, would call them out as hoaxers and all of that. But they took lie detector tests. Yeah. Polygraph tests. Both of them. Which they're nothing to sneeze at. It's hours and hours and hours of your time getting baseline readings and, you know, you're hooked up to this machine and they passed with flying colors. So even if it was a hoax, they believed what they were saying. Well so, so that's not a hoax. A hoax is that you you aim to mislead. Someone. So they would have, it would have been, right. So if it was a hoax, it would be somebody was carrying this out on them. Like somebody was pranking them. Right. Got it. So they were not hoaxing, but the public was claiming that they were making this up. Um, Which that story really gained traction when they decided to write their own book. Mm -hmm. But on the Merv Griffin show in the 70s, they were guests of the show Mm -hmm. and he asks you know because they wrote a book and he's like well why you know why now why are you telling your story and kathy on that show is quoted as saying and there's video of her saying like well other people took this public first and so we decided to get our own story out there because there were misconceptions and there was other stuff going around and they wanted to be in control of their own narrative and even if they gain you know there's monetary gain in this you write a book Mm -hmm. there are people who write books off of tragedies all the time did they write their book before or after the movie came out the movie is based on their book okay so but there were other things in the news 
happening and Hans Holzer went out there and things got a little wonky. So I think they just wanted to steer it back and reclaim their own story. Yeah. And I don't necessarily, I don't think that makes them hoaxers or out to be seeking something. Mm -mm. If their story has monetary value, their story has monetary value. Does that mean that they're less credible for just sharing their story? No, I don't think so. Right. I don't think so either. And I do have my own theory about why they hit so much backlash. And it's, it's something we skipped over a little bit or left out until now. Right in the middle of this timeline, mm-hmm. when they were talking to Ed and Lorraine Warren, mm-hmm. they also reached out to the lawyer of Ronnie DeFeo Jr. Right. Because in their experiences, in their early conversations with Ed and Lorraine, who fully believed in, that there was a demonic mm-hmm. oppression happening in this home, they realized, wait a minute, maybe there is something to what Ronnie DeFeo Jr. is saying about yeah. being under control and killing his family. Because we're experiencing darkness in this house. Maybe that's what happened to him. And the community did not take kindly to that. Because you're taking the responsibility off of this murderer. And saying, well, a demon made him do this, so he's not responsible. And in that community, who were mourning this tragedy, mourning this this beautiful family, you're going to tell them that this guy's not responsible? Nobody's going to be happy taking that explanation. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you don't want to hear that this nice button that this community has on this case. Like, yep, he was the one. He's been convicted. He's in prison. Case is closed. You don't want to hear that maybe he's not. Maybe he's also a victim. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's a hard pill to swallow. So I think that's why they were met with so much backlash is because they reached out to this lawyer um, they were discussing book deals and ideas at that time. They also were discussing like what type of embellishments could be made to add to the story to be more interesting. Uh-huh. But in the context of writing a book and making a movie, that always happens. Like when we watch paranormal investigation shows or we do our own investigations, right. we investigated for three hours over multiple days mm-hmm. to get that video evidence of a chair moving for one second. Yeah. So And that's exciting to us. Yeah. So I can't imagine that we're not going to make a movie off that. No. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> it's barely a clip. Yeah. But it's great. We love it. Things have to be embellished if you're going to make a movie off of them and you're going to make it a scary book. Right. That doesn't really mean they didn't go through some weird things. I don't think it negates those other things, but who's to really say? I just think that's why they were met with such harsh backlash. That makes sense. And I also think that Ronnie DeFeo Jr. was a piece of garbage. And I think that he, if there was evil in that house after he left, mm-hmm. he started it. Or he fed into it and he opened up a whole different can of worms because he allowed it to take over. Yeah. And he allowed himself to carry these things out. But if I were under, well, I have no idea. But if I were under the influence of evil, unbeknownst to me, and if it didn't already exist in myself and I wasn't a, you know, trying to feed into it, and I murder my family and then come to with their blood on my hands... Mm-hmm. I would want to be locked up. I would be yeah. so devastated and horrified if I came back out of that, you know, and maybe he just didn't come back out of it, but he well, methodically hid the murder weapon and came up with an alternative theory to tell, to feed police. So maybe a story for a different time for sure, but we'll touch on it just real quick here. Um, and it also kind of ties into our For a Fright. Um, the newest Conjuring movie coming out is called The Devil Made Me Do It. Yeah. That just Which, is our four of fright. We'll, we'll get really like a little bit more okay. into it. But 
Um, so this is a, a case where a young man uh, stabs his landlord mm-hmm. and doesn't remember doing it. And so he claims that the you know he was possessed and right. that's what caused him to do it. But one of the things that he says, and I think it's a line actually in the movie he they use the line, but he says, I think I hurt someone. That's mm-hmm. what that's when he, he so just like what you said, like he goes you come to the to cops. and you realize like I did something horrible. Yeah. I was under the influence of some of evil forces. Right. It wasn't me. Yeah. But Ronnie DeFeo go, goes and hides it and comes up with a story and then is just cocky and weird in the courtroom. He says that a, per, a priest watched his performance on the witness stand and thought that his performance meant he was possessed by the devil. Yeah. And he kept saying performance, which is just such a garbage thing That's to a say. Weird, like, yeah. you're supposed to just be telling the truth, not performing. Yeah. So I think if there is evil in that house, he opened it. I agree. He was dark. Yeah. This person, in of it, you know, himself, he started that. Yeah, yeah, he definitely was not uh, someone who was a victim of oppression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. not at all. Because I even think George he, Lutz, he, he felt was already that way. Yeah, George Lutz felt the oppression coming on, and he sought help. Yeah, well, it's an interesting case, and it's cool that there's so many points to it that you know we can really get through day by day what this family went through. I think that's really cool. And the fact that they had the, the foresight to write a book of their actual accounts and release that according to their terms. For sure. So. I just wish that the book and movie could have been part of the Conjuring franchise and included Ed and Lorraine's investigation. Yeah. But they didn't, they weren't really in on that. Yeah, I think that the, just came after. the movie specifically revolves around the actual haunting part right. of it, of mm-hmm. the, the Lutz family. And then Ed and Lorraine don't get there until after they've already left anyway. So I'm pretty sure the movie ends with them escaping the house. And mm-hmm. that's credits. Right. So then the after credit scene is Ed and Lorraine showing up. There's not really an after credit scene, I'm just saying. Oh. <laughs> but they talk about the events in the yes. Conjuring. In, in the Conjuring movies, they it's sort of happening in the background. Mm-hmm. They have to go to a case in Long Island, they say, or something like that. So anyway, for our For a Fright this week, we mentioned briefly, Joss talked about Arnie Johnson Mm -hmm. and the Devil Made Me Do It case, which is interesting because I mentioned that that may have been some of the backlash during the Amityville case is that Ed and Lorraine and the Lutz family tried to go to the lawyer Mm -hmm. of Ronnie DeFeo and, and, and say, hey, maybe he's possessed by a demon right and then in 1981 they do the same thing but with arnie johnson Mm -hmm. and ed and lorraine really take a leadership role in this case um and that conjuring movie was just released this weekend yep it's called the devil made me do it it looks super good and we're gonna watch it right after we're done recording (laughs) Um, but we do recommend it without seeing it first just because it has to do with the topic of this podcast a little bit yeah and ed and lorraine warren for sure and the conjuring movies are always they've always been good yeah they're they're a good time for sure awesome um i think that wraps it up for this episode as always we just want to you know thank you guys for listening and if you have any spooky stories or ideas for future shows that you want to share with us you can reach out to us on social media at fright life paranormal you can also shoot us a message over email at fright at gmail.com love to hear from you guys thanks so much for listening <laughs>
I'll see you guys next time.